I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Let me explain what we're doing here. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find us on page 697 uh, in the Pew Bible. We're not going to, um, well, let me just say this. We're going to spend about four weeks on this. This is the last week of Jesus' physical life on earth. This is what is sometimes called the Holy Week or the Passion Week. And it begins typically with Palm Sunday. But we're going to spend some extra weeks on it. So we're going to read the Palm Sunday passage today. But not worry about whether it falls on our calendar Palm Sunday. uh, So that we can spend a little extra time. Usually at Easter time uh, we got one Sunday to talk about quite a bit of stuff here. And then the next Sunday to talk about Easter. Because the calendar sort of drives the show We're not going to do that this year. We're going to take a little extra time. So however far we get in the passage today, we'll just continue it next week and the week after and the week after that. Before we get into the passage, I want to draw your attention here to an article on the insert called Understanding Easter. I want to read that with you. I'd like you to just follow along. I think it's important to understand some of the history in the background. Now for some of you, this uh, would be old news, but for some... It needs explanation, what is this Easter event about. So let's just start. I'm going to read. You can follow along. Easter is the time of year when Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. While all the events of Jesus' life are significant, Jesus' death and resurrection are foundational to God's redemption plan. Celebrating Easter is not mandated in the Bible, so it is not an ordinance like communion or baptism, but it is a good opportunity to focus on the defeat of sin and death that the cross and the resurrection represent. The word Easter is not a biblical word, so some prefer Resurrection Sunday instead. Eggs and bunnies are not directly connected to Jesus' resurrection, but do celebrate spring and new life. All four Gospels contain the story of the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Palm Sunday remembers the day he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with the crowds calling him king. Maundy Thursday remembers the Passover feast that became the Last Supper. Good Friday commemorates the day that he actually died on the cross. And Sunday is Easter, or Resurrection Sunday, thereby completing Holy Week. Crucifixion, the method of Jesus' death was a form of capital punishment that the Romans, who ruled Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, adapted from the Persians. It was reserved for those who were not Roman citizens and was done in public to warn others. While the Bible reports the physical pain of the cross, it also focuses on Jesus' agony at being separated with sin and thereby alienated from, uh, I'm sorry, being identified with sin and thereby alienated alienated from the Father. The early Christians celebrated the resurrection weekly on the first day of the week because Jesus rose on that day. That is why the day of rest, the Sabbath concept for Christians, is usually associated with Sunday, the first day of the week. The reason for making it a special annual event has to do with the annual Passover of the Jews and the spring Easter celebration of the European pagans that was already in place. Prior to A.D. 325, different Christian communities celebrated Easter at different times. In that year, the Council of Nicaea uh, issued the Easter Rule, fixing the annual resurrection celebration based on the moon and the spring equinox. So now Easter is always on a Sunday between the dates of March 22 
and April 25. Eastern Orthodox Christians still use a different date, and the Jewish Passover is also governed by the moon, but can fall on any day of the week so long as it's the 14th of Nisan on the Jewish calendar. That's as much information as we need. And uh, if anybody asks you what the history of Easter is, uh, sometimes there's discussion about Easter is a pagan celebration and the word Easter was a pagan god. Um, I don't know the evidence of that isn't very good. The etymology of the word is uh, not entirely clear. There's some evidence that it came from the German for spring. And so I, um, I guess I want to encourage you not to get too caught up in debates about peripheral, secondary, or technical matters and focus on what it really is. And so for the next several weeks, um, while all the world around us is actually putting some attention on this, we're going to do that too. And uh, we're going to go to the uh, official record of this, Matthew 21, starting with verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now we're going to stop there. This is part of the story. And this story exists in all four Gospels. So there's details that aren't included in Matthew that you may be remembering from other parts of the story. But essentially, this was something predicted in the Old Testament about the Messiah, when the Messiah comes. But there's some interesting features of this king in his arrival, which are indicated by the way that he did it. I should mention that when he's coming into Jerusalem, this is not, according to the biblical record, the first time he was in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was the capital city and also was essentially the religious shrine of a very religious country. And it is to this day. You know what goes on in Jerusalem. There's the Temple Rock and there's a great deal of conflict over that. And in that day it was the identifying city or the identifying place of Israel which was very clearly Jewish in people but also in religion. And so this is Jesus approaching his final confrontation. Now I think it might be important to note from the story of Jesus, and we've been going through Matthew for quite a while off and on, and you'll notice that sometimes, and even the instructions he gave his disciples, was when you run into conflict, just move. We're not here to confront, to fight, or to have conflict, and if you can't 
manage if nobody's interested in what you have to say move on to another city you might remember that from when he sent the disciples out on their first mission and when the in the book of acts it's quite a bit the same way with the missionaries when the doors closed they moved on uh, they uh, they didn't sometimes they sought God's direction or sought other ways but quite often the apostle Paul would simply move on they were not about conquest not about confrontation if the confrontation came that was legit and this is what happened with Jesus most of his ministry entailed moving on when people didn't want to hear what he had to say and he intentionally avoided the conflict with the religious leaders in Jerusalem as long as he could but his ministry three and a half years worth of it was coming to this conclusion and he had already said that you remember told the disciples in the previous chapter that all these things were going to happen he was going to be crucified the Gentiles were going to, uh, the details were there and he had given them that before so now as they're approaching the city this town of Bethphage is on the rise as you go down into the city so now they can actually see where they're going and where the confrontation is going to be I think some of the message of that is uh, there's a time and a place to confront, uh, to speak truth to power, if you will. And there's a time and a place to walk away and have an effective ministry someplace else or an effective communication with a different neighbor or a different family member. That's the style that Jesus brought to the table and instructed his disciples in how to do it. The message that they're quoting, the verses that they're quoting, come from the Old Testament here. Let's see, Zechariah 9, verse 9, that's a quote from that. And there's a reference also in here to Isaiah. Now, you may know that Hosanna means uh, Lord save. It's really a prayer. And in the Old Testament, uh, starting with Psalm 118, we did a re an antiphonal reading uh, to, uh, from that. But that was part of what was called the Hallel Psalms which they used for all of their major celebrations in Jerusalem, which was antiphonal. They had, they had a crowd on this side say one thing and the other crowd respond. Sometimes they were official people assigned to the job. The Levite priests were, had this role uh, for centuries, but the people themselves would do it. And this was a way of interacting over the message. But it was a promise. If you look at Psalm 118, it's prophetic and promissory. In other words, it's drawing attention to the fact that the Messiah is going to come. The Israelite culture, the Jewish culture, was filled with the hope of the coming Messiah. One of the difficulties that many believing Jews have today is that the modern-day Israel, the hope has been, in many cases, it's history for sure, Zionism, has made the hope not the Messiah, not spiritual, not God, but political. In fact, the founders of modern Israel, to a large extent, were atheists and communists and socialists. This goes back to the early 20th century. There are many believers in Israel who are looking for the Messiah, were looking for the Messiah, and many who have come to Christ today, but the history of modern-day Israel is not really this. It's political. Zionism is political, not spiritual. And that's a good thing to keep in mind sometimes when we pray for Israel. Pray, we're praying for the spiritual conversion and the coming Messiah just as the true believers there are. We're not just praying for political might and military accomplishment. If 
we are following the Jesus pattern, the biblical pattern, we're looking for something more, something greater, something spiritual, not just a political entity accomplishing its goals for power. So the Israelites were well aware of the coming Messiah. But Jesus came riding on a donkey. Now there's a message in that. Not only was it a prophecy from the Old Testament, but there's a story of the son of David riding a donkey. Maybe you remember the story of his son Absalom rebelling against him. And when finally this was all over, David came riding back into Jerusalem, not on a horse, a white steed, with his army all about him, but on a donkey to show humility, to show that this is God's kingdom and he is a servant. The message David conveyed, and this is a deliberate attempt to reconvey that message, is that this king is an unusual king. This is not a king riding on a tank or riding, uh, riding at high speed on a, um, on a Humvee or, or parachuting out of a jet plane or landing with a Black Hawk helicopter or anything like that. This is a king riding on a donkey, probably the colt, actually. So there's a, there's a double message there that this is a different kind of kingdom we're talking about here. Now, he will come as the Messiah in the clouds and with the sword. That he said. Now, no question about that. We get to that in a couple chapters in this very book of Matthew. But his coming as the Redeemer, the servant king, the, the, the servant, the sacrifice, and all of the things that go with what we speak and preach to the world around us is represented by this. He is the king, yes, but it's a way of being a king that's entirely not the way the world would like it and the way the world expects, and the way the Israelites expected, which is why many of them rejected him, threw him out, crucified him, because he didn't represent what they were looking for. And I think that is instructive to us. Sometimes it's useful to remember that what we are looking for from Jesus is not really what he's offering. Um, I would remind, as we talked about this in the previous chapters, that the message that Jesus brought uh, frequently is not what people want. Remember the rich young ruler, just a paragraph or two back. He had, Jesus said he had to say goodbye because he really wanted to follow the Messiah. But Jesus said, not on these terms. No negotiation here. This is the king, the ruler. Not the king you wanted, but the king you need. Now I'm going to... Um, uh, read the next passage and we'll take up discussion of that next week. Start with verse 12. This paragraph follows right on from this as part of the whole triumphal entry. Verse 12 says, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money chambers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The image you get from this I think is intentional. Um, here comes this king to this grandiose temple with people in robes and tall hats and beautiful things with gold everywhere. And he caters to the lame and the blind and the children are following along behind him 
singing or shouting Hosanna to the son of David. You've got to get an image from this that is telling us that the type of kingship we're talking about here and Jesus is talking about is quite radical. And the response was suited to that. In verse 16, they said, Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him, Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? Ah, you may remember that expression more because it's become part of our culture from the mouth of babes. Remember that? This is where it comes from. And this is also a quote from the Old Testament. And verse 17, and he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Now, if you're under the impression that Jesus was a wimp, then you haven't read the book. Not only are you going to find out that he's not a wimp when he returns, but you even find out what he was like then. He was strong, he was bold, he took a stand, and he even exhibited anger at the appropriate times. And I want to say again, if nothing in this world around you makes you angry, you're probably dead at heart. You should be angry about some things. We should be angry about some things. We should do the right thing, but we should be angry about the kinds of things that go on around us that abuse others, that harm even the people doing them. These are the things that Jesus represented, the things that put him on the cross. And they had turned this temple, a place of prayer and a place for coming to God in prayer and in worship. They had turned it into a commercial enterprise. All very practical. All very pra and the logic is always good. Turn it into a business deal. I mean, there's nothing wrong with business, right? Well, no, there's nothing wrong with business. But there ought to be some place that's dedicated to not doing business. There's nothing wrong with the military or the police force or doing business or politics. But can we have one place where the focus is on God and not guns or money or something like that? Can't we have at least one place where we gather together to put our focus on God who is alive, and that's what that represented to them. And Jesus never contested that, but he did say, take this out into the world and influence the world as salt and light. So his response here, this really isn't about the building. This is about what they had done with it. All very logically turned it into commercial enterprise. People would come and they needed to buy their sacrifices and they needed to do all these things. And what happens? Eventually, the deals, the business rises to the top. And now you got a church or temple or whatever it is. That's mostly about building and mostly about property, about money. If we're not careful, or mostly about ceremony, or mostly about power structures, or mostly about whatever, bring it in. If Jesus is not kept front and center. That is what happens. It's called gravity. And there wasn't really anything wrong with gravity. But Jesus said, that's not going to happen here. This is my mission. If you want to know what kind of king I am, this is the kind. It's about God. I want to take you through five takeaways for life. And then um, we will save the closing song, Peter. We will save that for next week. And we're a series we're continuing some of the songs we're going to repeat and uh, follow through, and that'll be a good opportunity to do that. 
The application, takeaways for life. Number one, do you know the scriptures about Jesus' return enough to recognize him when he appears as king? Now, I'm just, that's just a reference to the fact that when he came as king, those people, not the leaders, but those who were genuine seekers after God did recognize him. And when they said, Hosanna to the son of David and called him king, they were right. They didn't understand what kind of king he was going to be. But they did know the scripture well enough to be looking for a king. And he was that. So here's a question for us. Do you know the scriptures well enough to recognize the king when he returns again? I don't mean try to predict the details. I mean just know it well enough to know what he's going to look like and act like when he comes back. Number two in the takeaways. How willing are you to publicly proclaim your belief that Jesus is the Messiah and the king? Now you've got to understand that these children and these people who were following him and throwing down their robes and palm branches or whatever they were, one of the other uh, gospel counts says there were palm branches, uh, but uh, throwing down, they were taking a stand, a public stand. They knew that the powers that be, the power structure of their city was opposed to the sky. This was already well established. So they were taking a stand for Jesus and they were going in with him and they were going to stand with him by proclaiming that they think he's the king. Now sometimes that's all it takes, but it's also sometimes all that it takes to get a reaction you may not like. These people definitely got a reaction along with Jesus for things. It was Jesus who said, blessed are you who are persecuted for my name's sake. This isn't always going to turn out well or comfortable when we say that. It's kind of fun to think about marching down the road, everybody yelling and everything like that and throwing their cloaks down. Uh, but sometimes it's a little harder to take a stand when it's just you on the job or you in your neighborhood or you somewhere else taking a stand and saying, no, 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 we got to, our king um, has a value system and I'm going with that. Number three, have you allowed the methods and the context issues to overpower the content of your worship life? Referring here to what had gone on in the temple, it become just about the business dealings and the structure and the ceremony. Number four, have you lost interest in the original mission of love for real live people and their real live needs. The lame and the blind in the temple and the children. Jesus brought them all in the temple. Now you would think that they would have been the first. They would have been already there. But they weren't. He brought them in there. Real live people. Sometimes there's a lot of things about our lives that can take over and the needs around us in real live people get skipped over. An expression sometimes about such in a hurry to get to church that I didn't had to run over somebody to get here. Uh, I'm afraid that might be more common than not. Sometimes we uh, ignore the people right around us that have a need for our love and compassion like those around Jesus and uh, while we're busy doing something religious. Number five, who is God calling you to minister to this week? So you can answer the WWJD question. Remember that? People used to wear bracelets. What would Jesus do? Well, we know. There's a story right here about King. He didn't need to put all his effort into these kids and the lame and the poor and all the people that needed him, but that's what he did. So who might you encounter this week? Maybe somebody comes to mind 
that God would have you bring the message of Jesus, love, touch their lives in some way on a personal level. Not a religious or political level, but a personal level. It'd be good to let the Lord show you maybe at least one person this week. Good goal. Father, we are grateful that we can represent a king that we don't need to worry about being corrupt, abusing his power, or working us over for more for himself. We got a king named Jesus who has our best interests at heart, but also has made us partners in a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom with values that may contradict the world around us, but our eternal values. To show us this week, we're asking what we might do, what we might do, people we might touch, blessings we might be, whether it be through something organized or just a one-on-one with a name. We ask for you to lead us and to give us the courage and the boldness to speak up and to reach out. In Jesus' name we're asking it. Amen.